welcome to episode 123 of Teal Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be talking, first of all, about charitable or critical reading. Do we read with kindness or with criticism? Um, which is a topic recommended by Susanna. Thanks, Susanna. As we all know, we're, we're always scrambling around for topics, so always grateful for questions. <laughs> and in the second half, we're going to be comparing two books by different authors. So the first, Harriet Said by Beryl Bainbridge, and the second, Sheep's Clothing by Celia Dale. And sadly, we today, we don't have either of our authors um, with us no. <laughs> this last time, as they are no longer with us. Um, but uh, we certainly had a very positive response to having our wonderful guest, Mary Lawson, on the previous podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, highly recommend it. We did, it. and I'm still coming down from the high myself. Wasn't it wonderful? Yeah, absolutely wonderful. What a treat. And so generous in her time and mm. uh, her enthusiasm for talking with us about her work I mean it was a very special experience it was and I've heard from a few people who hadn't read her and have now read her since oh. then and loved her so um we are creating more Mary Lawson fans which is excellent that's that, that's what we're here for that's what we're here for yeah <laughs> if any authors are listening and want to want to come on then please let us know get in touch <laughs> yeah, it's a dangerous thing to say was it but yes <laughs> So, Simon, how are you reading as we have now launched into our Advent season? Any Christmas books yet? Any Christmas what, sorry? Christmas books that you've been reading? Uh, Christmas books. No, I have watched five bad Christmas Hallmark films so far. Um, But uh, I don't think I'm reading anything Christmassy. I don't... mm, Although Stories for Winter and Nights by the Fire, the latest British Library Women Writers collection, is now out. So a little little shout out for that. They did a, they did a Christmas collection last year, and I think this one is um, even better. I think it's real real high standard, and I can say that because I only suggested two of the stories in there. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Angela Carter and the Elizabeth Taylor, I believe, were from me. Uh, but um, yeah, the rest of the great work of Alison. Oh. And I'm really saying, Rachel, that because we had Mary on last time, um, we haven't talked about going to see Rebecca, which uh, we um, did, what, six weeks ago now? I don't know. Yes. But, um, we saw Rebecca, the musical. Mm. Um, it was fun. <laughs> it was what, weird, but it was fun. It was, it was an experience, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, it was, it was certainly largely faithful to the book. Yes. Yes. Um would we recommend it to fans of Rebecca? Um, I think I probably would. I mean, it's the the singers, particularly Mrs. Danvers, very good. Very good. Um, and uh, I will say it was translated from German, mm-hmm. and you can tell it's translated yeah. from another language. Um, some of the some of the lyrics, particularly, are a bit uh, a bit on the nose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as I say, like I oft I come away thinking of the opening lines to the song. Fire, fire, Mandalay's on fire, which is <laughs> maybe a low point. But overall, I think it's a fun time. I would, yeah. It's, it's, if it's not super expensive, then I'd recommend going and seeing it. Yes. I mean, it's, um, for those of us who are more into theatre, it's not the most, I don't think it's the right theatre for it. The stage isn't big enough for a musical and the and the sets are, are rather uh, amateur. But the actual performances, I thought, were very strong. Though, tonally, I did think it was a little bit off in places. And what I will say is that I don't like the fact that we're not 
that of making light of the fact that a man did actually murder a woman. I will say no more than that if people do. Yes, yes. <laughs> Spoilers. But other than that, um, it's uh, it was a fun night out and always nice to see each other, isn't it? Well, yes, that was lovely. Yeah. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Well, um, I'm sort of I'm doing something that I don't normally do. So I'm I'm reading an enormous book, which I mentioned last time, Temptation, um, by Janusz uh, Sakeli. Apologies to Hungarian listeners. Um, and it's you know it's 900 pages long so I'm I'm kind of reading it but then I'm also reading other books along uh, and I do know it's counterproductive because I I think well if I'd actually just focused on reading it then I would be finished by now but somehow it feels more efficient to be reading other books alongside I don't know what's going on in my head but there we are Um, welcome to the dark side yeah I have joined the the multiple reading um club which you know is is a pretty good club to be in it's it's kind of changed my reading habits but i um, i just read a wonderful book called family album by antonia ridge which i know that you would love simon and i blogged well i've read it yeah. oh you have yeah, yeah. It's, i did enjoy it a lot and uh for for people who, who haven't read it it's um it was actually written initially as the first book to be serialised on Women's Hour, the BBC radio show that still go, is still going strong now, back in 1952. And it's, uh, I, I, from what I've managed to find online, potentially a true story, potentially the story of, the, of, of Antonia Ridge's own life. That's what I've seen in sources, but I, I can't verify that. If anybody knows, I'd be interested to, to hear and it's about a spinster English teacher who travels to France to find her her long lost family um, in middle age. You know, she decides life's too short after the death of a family member, and she wants to go off and have an adventure. And it's just the most beautiful, um, heartwarming, easy read that is, I thought, very similar to D. Stevenson um, in tone. That kind of or misread as well. I know you're not a big fan of misread, but uh, those those oh, I enjoy her at times. Yeah, yeah. Hot water bottle books where you don't need to think about anything, and obviously everything that happens to everyone is is just great, and um, everybody you know everybody gets what they deserve, and there aren't really any problems or difficulties that anyone encounters, and it's all just very easy. I mean, it's not great literature, but it. I just absolutely loved it. And it was just a serendipitous purchase. I found it in a charity shop and I thought, oh, that dust jacket looks nice. Um, But yes, and I I was thinking to myself, perhaps it would make a very nice British uh, Library Women Writers book. Yeah, I actually read it um, when someone called Michelle got in touch uh, to suggest it as a British Library Women Writers book um a couple of years ago. And so I just got a copy and yeah, I really enjoyed it. I can't remember why I didn't... Um, at that point suggested but maybe it was just on, on the backlog I, I think I probably put it on a, on a long list so maybe I need to bring it up again with uh, the British Library and see now it's got the Rachel uh, seal of approval too but um, I definitely had fun and I bought another one by her I can't remember the name of it now which I've not read but she uh, Michelle also recommended one called um, Grandma Went to Russia which sounds oh, fun it does so. okay but I should look out for that I'd like to read another. What about you, Simon? What have you been reading? Um, I've been reading, um, what's it called? The Persimmon Tree by Marjorie Barnard. Oh. Who, it's a Virago modern classics collection of short stories. And I don't have any, normally I write 
when and where I, I buy a book and it's not in there so that means either I didn't think to do that or I bought it more than 15 years ago which is quite possible um uh she is an Australian writer and what I can tell from Google is considered um very highly in Australian mid-century literary culture I um don't know anything about her really it's a collection of short stories some of them very short some of them a bit longer um and yeah it's really beautiful it's it's basically lots of moments from lives of um of middle class women in the sort of early to mid century, and there's a certain sort of Catherine Mansfield esque flavour to it. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, they yeah they're rather lovely. I just um, I've been going through lots of different short story collections around my house, trying to find suggestions for the next British Library Women Writers Collection, which is going to be a, a book about summer stories. Oh. Um, I think I, um, not coming out for a long time, obviously, but um, we're doing the selection thing now. So whilst leafing through this one, uh, I thought, um, well, I'll keep reading this one. That one's quite fun. Uh, I do recognise that that uh, summer in Australia is a, is a different time um, <laughs> of year to, to us. But uh, hopefully, <laughs> I, did, I did suggest one story from it, which may or may not make it. But, um, so it's a story called The New Dress, basically about a young woman who wears very nervous about wearing a new dress on a date and it is not appreciated and that's basically the whole story but um yeah I'm really enjoying it I'm interested to find out I actually picked up the other day when I was in the charity shop always in the charity shop um uh, a Virago collection of stories of by an, a writer I'd never heard of called Ivy Litvinov um which mm. so I'll I'll leave through those and see if I can see any summer stories for you in there oh thank you yes yeah yeah, it's a shame that um, Virago don't seem to t- take that many gambles with their modern classics line anymore, and they tend to do the tried and true people, it seems. But Yes, it's the, the heyday is over, perhaps, but um, it's always a, a treat to uncover one of the old green spine ones, isn't it? And think, oh, I've not come across this person. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, shall we get started on our, our first discussion? I'm going to let you get started on this one, because I'm... I, I'm not sure how I would start, so I'm going to let you read us. Yes, well, let me see if I can see what Susanna actually said. Um, that might be a good introduction. Okay, so Susanna says, oh, she, well, she started listening to the podcast whilst doing a close reading of Sensibility for a book club with her sisters. Isn't that wonderful? Um, and so the first question is, do you read books charitably or critically? And she says, Ella Abbott Hugh of St. Victor. And I have no idea who Abbott Hugh of St. Victor is. Um, but, well, I assume and better read and <laughs> should probably be doing this podcast, but, um, but I, but I was struck by it because I think, uh, whether I approach a book expecting to like it or expecting not to like it will change a lot how charitable or critical I am. Because if I'm going towards a book, um, say it's by an author I love, then I'm ready to like it. I'm ready to overlook er um, faults or anything. Um, Particularly if it's an author that I I felt was part of my identity when I was developing a readership. So I've mentioned a few times Richard Crompton. Absolutely loved her around... 20 years ago devoured mm. lots of them um now when i go back to the more read new ones i'm still enjoying them but i do recognize the writing isn't quite as good as i thought it was at the time she uses a lot of ellipses at the end of paragraphs and I, but, uh, as i'm reading it it's like I'm, I'm at my most charitable because i'm thinking i really want this to be good because it matters to how i define myself as a reader but also you know I, she 
she means a lot to me or meant a lot to me particularly. Um, so I'm going very charitably in there. Whereas if I'm if I'm being forced to read a book for my book club that I don't think I'm going to like, then I am at my most critical. I'm ready to, to think, no, this was a waste of time. Uh, obviously, sometimes I read books for book club that I do want to read or that I think I will enjoy and that I'm not so critical. But sometimes I've had them where it's like, oh, here is this enormous sci-fi novel you have to read and I'm sitting there reluctantly and grumpily <laughs> reading through it and I am ready to snipe at everything. And I do sometimes find myself thinking, particularly when I'm reading a modern novel that I don't particularly want to read, I think, if this novel were published in the 1930s, would you be this critical? And I realise, mm -hmm. oh no, I need to actually be a bit, bit readier to enjoy it. So those are my extremes, I guess. And and everything else sort of falls in between. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you just made there about how how we would approach novels if written in the past as opposed to now. And I, I think um actually you're quite right. For example, I I quite enjoy reading Stella Gibbons's backlist. And I often find in her books and also a lot of the other sort of mid century writers that that we tend to like, some quite often upsetting racial slurs etc classism and those things feel uncomfortable to read but they don't stop me from enjoying the book because I can think oh well it was written 100 years ago or whatever if I read a book now that had those sorts of comments in that weren't being used to criticize I mean number one it wouldn't get published now but if if I were to read something where I, I didn't like the attitude of the writer I didn't like their approach to something, um, politically or socially. I I would have absolutely no patience for it whatsoever, and I would just stop reading immediately. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have any generosity towards them because my thinking would be, well, you should know better. And I don't know whether that's necessarily a healthy way to read because then that doesn't challenge me to sit with things, other people's perspectives that make me feel uncomfortable. Um, in a way that I, I am much more able to do with with older older books, um, which I think is interesting because it's it means that I'm I'm holding people to different with to, I'm holding people to different standards depending on on when they lived in time. But whether I should do that or not, I don't know. There's a have that debate a lot with students in class when we're talking about literature, you know, because the kids often get quite incensed about things that that writers from the past say about people and. You know, they say, well, it's wrong, it's disgusting, and they should have they should have known anyway. It's it's just a fact that these things, you know, that you can't think like that about people. And we talk a lot about, you know, if you're surrounded by people who think the same as you, does that, you know, does that excuse you? And and I don't know. I think it's um, I think it's interesting that I do have that that approach that oh well, they couldn't help it, but actually, could they? I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? Because I do think it's always worth bearing in mind for these things that there are definitely things that we all unquestioningly believe that in a hundred years' time will be considered completely abhorrent, and yeah. we don't know what they are. And the people will look at us and think, "How do they not know that X, Y, Z?" And and maybe they'll be right to think that. Maybe we should have thought about it, but we just don't know what it is, and we don't think about it. So um, you have to always, yeah, I think it's always important to remember that we're not at the end point of morality and everything was leading to this point. Um, but, yeah, in terms of old books, um, I, yeah, I'm, feeling, I'm much more charitable and forgiving of these things. Um, and I think it do, I, do, I do go in with that benchmark of what people were like at the time. So if... So... 
if people are particularly you know racist even for their time then i probably judge them more um but it's maybe just a lower watermark or something um for, for the standard i expect from people mm. but you're as you've said before um that we wouldn't reprint things now that were very racist but you do still reprint things that are very misogynist so mm. um why why is that okay uh why is that standard um or why people expect it to be able to contextualize that in a way that they don't contextualize other things yeah I think we do have we have different categories of things that we do and don't find acceptable, and I think for me that's that is problematic. And I mean, I for me, if something is sexist, I I won't read it at all, even in the past. You know, I've had books before that you've recommended to me, and I've started reading it and just thought, no, I can't read this. The treatment of women is is terrible, and I know that it's of its time, but I just I can't read it. Um, it just it just bristles me too much um, but it's I think it's hard I think to be critical and, and charitable I think for, for people like us who have got English degrees and who who have been trained to read critically I think mm. it's very hard not to read critically in some respects in terms of for me I'm always judging the quality of the prose as I'm reading I'm always thinking about themes and ideas it's just kind of like that's I can't ever turn that off and also obviously I I am an English teacher by profession so every day I'm doing that at school so it's it's really hard for me reading something that is pure and utter like trashy like the book I I just mentioned family album you know I I will always, to a certain extent, be thinking, oh, well, I wouldn't have written it like that, or I'm not really sure why they've used these words, or I'm not really sure, um, you know, this is a bit lazily written, or this character's a bit lazy, or why have they put this chapter here, or whatever, that, you know, this bit wasn't necessary. I've always got that critical voice at the back of my head. Um, And there are certain writers, I think, who I expect more of than others. So there are things that certain writers, say, for example, a writer that I absolutely love, who I know is is a brilliant writer. If I read something by them that feels less good than their than their other work, I will judge that quite harshly, um, and I I won't enjoy it because I'll be comparing it critically with what they've produced beforehand. Um, whereas if I'm reading an author I'm not familiar with, I don't know the rest of their work, then I would probably be a bit more generous, a bit more charitable with their work if I'm not comparing it to something else they've already written. I think it's when you're reading a body of work or reading somebody's body of work, you can't help yourself critically comparing mm. with their other stuff. Do you find yourself doing that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that's, yeah, that's what I was hint- starting to talk about earlier, I guess, is that um, there'll be some sort of fr- expectations and framework for what I think the novel standard should be. Mm. So if I'm thinking, you know, this is an author I really like or I really admire, then there'll be a high benchmark, but I'll also be more, um anticipating that it'll reach it so i've so for example i re i read michael cunningham's new book um which is coming out in january but i managed to get an advanced copy and i i love him i particularly love him as a pro stylist so going in i was expecting him to be a brilliant pro stylist um and also wanting him to be i guess so maybe there were paragraphs there that in other authors i just read without really noticing but because my my frame of mind was Michael Cunningham is a brilliant pro stylist. I was like, oh wow, this is really great. I'll note this down. Um, and, and then I guess conversely, if it had fallen below what I was hoping for, 
to an extent enough that I'd recognize it, I'd be really disappointed even if his prose was normal or, you know, as good as any other writer. Because um, I think, oh, what I come to Michael Cunningham for is for his brilliant writing and his brilliant characters. Um, and if he'd just done a very... So, for example, Specimen Days by him, which has good writing and characters, but is much more about um, historical fiction and then science fiction in different sections. Mm. It's like, well, that's not what I want from him. It's completely altered what I'm looking for. And so I guess I'm I'm charitable until somebody that I really like falls away from what I'm hoping for and then it launches to much more critical than I would be otherwise. Yeah, and I suppose that's not necessarily fair because we're not judging the work based on, on you know, we're judging the, the work by a standard that is mm. not necessarily fair, is it? It's like, well, if, if they've decided, if this writer's decided to experiment with something different, we should allow them to make that experiment rather than being like, yes, but it's not what I wanted though. It's not what I, you know, you haven't done this before. How dare you go off piste? How dare you give me something that I, I wasn't expecting? Yeah, A. Milne wrote some very funny stuff about reviewers, which mostly around the idea that, that exact idea that reviewers, a lot of what reviews are is saying this book isn't what I thought it should be. Yeah. And, he, and he wrote um, a funny review of Hamlet. Um, I can't remember all the details, but something like, you know, what nobody wants this from comic writer William Shakespeare. We all enjoyed his comedy, such and such, and now he thinks he can make us <laughs> think deeply, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, yeah, so and it is true, and it's not fair, but it, I guess it's it'd be impossible to come as a complete blank slate uh, to a book. Although the, in terms of writing style, I realised, and I think I've mentioned before, that I'm much more charitable with writing style with audiobooks than I am when I'm reading on the page. Yeah. So. I, I don't really notice or even particularly want a book to be well written if I'm listening to it as an audiobook and I've stopped listening to um, literary fiction as audiobooks because it just doesn't work for me that I just want something either non-fiction or if it's fiction just plotty and pacey and I guess as transparently written as possible um, so yeah that's where I've started listening to not very well written fiction I guess yeah it is um I think as well, you can sort of when I mean, I don't, you know, we've had this debate before, I can't listen to audiobooks because they just go sailing over my head. But it's interesting how I think when you're listening to something, you're, you're you focus on different things. And you know, you are more focused on the overarching plot, you're more focused on the characters. And if those are engaging, and those carry you through, then, you know, you're enjoying yourself, and you're not really thinking much beyond that. Whereas when you're reading on the page, you are more focused on the actual choices of words and thinking about it as a as a piece of of writing as well as a story and for me I can't really separate the two um and even if I'm reading something that has got a great plot and it's got great characters if it's clumsily written or you know something for me that I I will really judge harshly on is the use of coincidence um uh. that is for me pushes the boundaries of believability if it's supposed to be believable and it's not then no matter how well the book is written that for me is a death knell to a good book I'm like come on seriously how how many you know I know people say truth is stranger than fiction but there comes a point where you just think like that, that these are just being the the writers sort of obviously wrote themselves into a cul-de-sac and couldn't think how else to get out. So it's like, oh, my next door neighbor's actually my long lost cousin. Wow, what a coincidence! That's <laughs> that, that kind of no matter how good the writer is, no matter how well reviewed the book is, no matter how amazing the prose is, if the plot is lazy like that, I'm not interested. 
I think that's another one where how charitable I am will depend on my expectations. So if I'm reading um, the equivalent of, you know, a Hallmark Netflix movie, mm-hmm. Hallmark Netflix, that can't be right. But, you know, this the sort of, you know, trashy rom-com, then yes, I'm fine with them both accidentally turning up in the shopping center at the same time or whatever it is. Um, but if I'm reading literary fiction, then yeah, absolutely not. So um, it's all for me, yeah, it's all about the expectations of the genre and the period uh, and sometimes my impersonal like the most charitable I am, obviously, is if I'm reading a book that a friend has written, then mm. I'm then I'm desperate to like it, <laughs> and and often I do really like it, and I imagine that is to an extent independent of how charitable I am. But but um, there's certainly I've read novels by friends. So if other people had written them, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about them. But because they were friends, I think actually I'm really enjoying this. And there's only one book a friend has written, which I'm not going to say that I ended up giving up on, um, which was actually, I think, probably very well written, but so out of my comfort zone that I didn't really have a clue what was going on. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess it's, that again, that um, spectrum, if, if my actual friends are where I'm most charitable, then the authors who feel like friends are where I'm next most charitable. And then I guess on the other end, the authors who feel like enemies are the ones I'm most critical with. Yeah, you'll find you'll find anything. To, to take issue with for the writing exactly particularly if you've hated a previous book like if i'm reading a dan brown book we're like oh this is trash this is trash yeah. this line's rubbish yeah yeah you can't you can't read it with anything as well i mean i just wouldn't read it in the first place though i suppose that's that's me i would just avoid the the writing altogether so um i wouldn't unless i'm having to read it for a book club or something but yeah i can say that's more or less the only time i would i was um someone was talking the other day about how, how they like hate reading books that it's like i just have to finish the series to see if every book's as bad as i thought it's like well, i definitely don't do that i don't have time for that no, in my reading life but, and if you know you're not going to like something then there's no point is there i mean yeah. you know why waste your time so i mean we need to come to a decision do we mostly read critically or charitably what would you come down on oh I think because, just because I want to enjoy the things I'm reading, then I'm probably approached with a slightly more charitable than critical, but it, it does differ a lot, but I think it probably falls slightly on that side. I would say I'm definitely more critical. And, you know, that probably says something about our different personalities, Simon. There we go, a middle ray of sunshine and you a pushover. Better <laughs> than me, clearly. So <laughs> It's a good question. Um, and yeah. if if uh, anyone knows, well, Susanna, if you can tell us more about who Abbot Hugh of St. Victor is and, and whether he th- reads charitably or critically, then uh, um, hopefully we've not completely misinterpreted your question. But, but I've enjoyed discussing the interpretation that we did put on it. Yeah. Um, we have a really quick question for the middle section um, from Gina, a friend of the pod. Gina? She says, do we like Myla dust jacket covers for vintage books? I wasn't familiar with this term. You might be, but Myla dust jackets are those um, sort of wraparound clear dust jackets um, you've, that you often see, sorry, or dust jacket covers that you often see over the top of dust jackets. Yeah, what an interesting question. Very, um, yeah. A very physical question to do with books. Um, actually, I love them. And um, it's always a little bit exciting um, when a book comes with one on because it, it normally means that someone's looked after it. And I, I think it's, for me, I, I find them, um, yeah, they make a book look really smart, I think. It looks like it's part of a collection. It's interesting because I hate them and I cut them off as soon as I get them in the house. <laughs> Do you? 
Um, I agree they look great. I just hate the feel of them, and I can't hold a book if they've got them on. I just I, I hate it. Um, so I've many like years, not years, many moments of my life I have uh, ripped off those covers, uh, particularly if they're on if they've if they've been on for a few years and they've gone all slightly crink, crackly and yellow and. Oh. oh yes, I mean if one yeah. arrives like that, I will cut it off. But if it's a, if it's a new one, um, then I I really like it because it makes me also feel more comfortable and safe reading it because I think well I'm not going to end up just accidentally destroying the dust jacket because um, I often you know I think I more than you buy books for the edition rather than mm-hmm. the book itself and I will always a book I love particularly a mid-century book, I will always try and find an original edition with a dust jacket if I can. Um, and so for me, looking after the dust jacket is really important and preserving it because it's part of the book's history. Um, and, you know, a lot of the books, but dust jackets, particularly from the 1950s and 40s, are printed on kind of war standard paper and they're very thin and fragile. So mm. having those dust jackets does kind of make me feel more comfortable about reading them and certainly if I'm reading them on the go and I'm chucking them in my bag and stuff then I'll I, I if it's not got a cover on it I'll have to take the dust jacket off but um and I just makes me feel like I've got like a little library in my house oh look at me with all my <laughs> yeah I can definitely I can see why they would have appeal um I, I I often take the dust jacket off instead if I if I'm putting it in my bag or I just think it's all part of the book's history. It might get it might get smudged in my bag, but you know that's part of the book being loved. Well, there we are with a different approach. Maybe. I didn't expect Maybe. you to say that. Actually, I thought that you would be you would be quite Oh no, I, yeah, they make me so uncomfortable. Um, it's like, who knew, well, good question, Gina. Who knew we would have both such strong opposite opinions? I um, I don't think there's enough for a full segment, full twenty minutes to talk about. <laughs> But, uh, but good for a middle int- middle um, section question. If anyone else has any questions, do get in touch at torbooks at gmail.com. Yeah, okay. Now we're going to compare uh, two books written um, in the sort of mid-century, well, actually mid to late uh, 20th century, and uh, Sheep's Clothing by Celia Dale, which has recently been republished by Daunt Books. And Harriet said by Beryl Bainbridge, which has also recently been republished as a Beryl Bainbridge has, has had a little republish and a refront uh, all new front covers that have all been sort of glammed up a little bit. Um, I can't remember who publishes her actually, but uh, Virago, in fact, Virago, there we are, um, with some nice new covers. So, um, if you don't mind, I'll do the Celia Dale if um, you're happy, yeah, to yeah, okay. So, sheep's clothing is a uh, sort of noir novel um, and it's the story of two women, Grace and Janice, who meet in Holloway Prison, uh, both both doing time for, for theft or larceny as it's called in the book. Um, and Grace is, is older, she's sort of in her 50s and Janice is in her 20s and Janice is a little bit simple and Grace is, is a kind of sees herself as a criminal mastermind and she takes Janice under her wing she sees a use for her as an accomplice and they end up sharing a flat together and Grace starts them out on a process of of tricking elderly people um into giving up their um inviting them into their homes on the premise that they are social security workers 
and then they they drug them and um, take their money while they're unconscious. And this process is something that's quite successful for a time. But then when both women start wanting something a little different from each other and conflict begins, then um, the whole enterprise risks unravelling. So I'll leave it there. Hopefully. Um, is your washing machine on, by the way? Oh, it is. Yeah, sorry. Yes, there we go. Just, in, just explain to people if they're getting some ambient noise. <laughs> it's, you know, as you know, I like to multitask. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it wouldn't be you if you <laughs> single-minded on the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, Harriet said was... Uh, the first novel that Beryl Bainbridge wrote, although the third one that was published, it was rejected by publishers at first. Um, it's and uh, the reason we put these together is it's also about two um, females, although they are young girls or teenage girls rather than women, uh, tricking people. Um, these an unnamed narrator and her friend Harriet. They're thirteen and twelve, and they set out basically to. Um, I guess humiliate uh, someone they know as the Tsar, Mister Biggs, mm. who lives in their in their village. Um, he, he it's, it's all very uncomfortable. Basically, he's a uh, they want to try and uh, trick him or be tricked by him into having uh, some sort of sexual relationship or as close to it as they can get. Uh, and it's all done as sort of an elaborate plan. But who's really planning against who? It's a very it's a very weird, dark, strange novel. Mm. Um, apparently, based on a real life murder case. Oh. Yeah, uh, I had only just followed that on Wikipedia, and I've not um, linked where it falls together. <laughs> but uh, f- the bulk of the novel is just about these these teenage girls in their summer holidays, um, and the way they're trying to manipulate the people around them, including their parents, including Mr. Biggs and Mrs. Biggs. Uh, and um, yeah, she really gets inside the mind of teenage girls in quite an unsettling way. Indeed. Um... Should we talk about this first? Because I'd heard lots of people talking about Beryl Brainbridge for a long time and I'd never read anything by her. And I, I actually came across this in a, in a charity shop and I, I read the blurb and I thought, gosh, that sounds, this sounds really interesting, really up my street. Um, particularly interested in this idea of this manipulative relationship between teenage girls. Um, I'd not really read a book with that dynamic in it before, so I thought it'd be really interesting. And... I just found it, every time I sort of picked it up to read it, it just made me feel a bit dirty reading it. Did you have the, that's it, it, I had that, a real visceral response that it just made me feel so deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, and is this, or is this your first and only Beryl Wainbridge to date? Well, it's my first and only, yeah. Yeah, so I, um, I did absolutely feel like that, but it's my, I don't know, sixth or seventh um Beryl Bainbridge and so I started with Injury Time which is basically as though Abigail's party suddenly turned into a hostage situation Um, (laughs) it's very funny but also very strange Um, and then um, the one that's most reminded me of is uh, I think it's called Another Part of the Woods which was I think reprinted at the same time in these in these fun covers Um, I should say I've got Rachel's copy she gave me (laughs) Rachel gave me her copy so we've read the same exact copy of this book um and so I'm always I always know that I'm going to be um unsettled in some way with Beryl Bainbridge and she's very strange writer uh Mm. I did find particularly with this one and it was because um it really treads that line of innocence and um guilt I guess Mm. uh that 
ostensibly it is the teenage girls who are the ones doing the manipulating, who are the ones um, like cornering this man. The, the, the unknown narrator is very much the uh, the one being manipulated by Harriet in some ways, but she's also the one who's saying, oh, we should get him to kiss me, we should get him to do X, Y, Z. She knows what she's doing. Yeah, and it's it was the thing that was uncomfortable. To, one of the things I found uncomfortable was trying to work out how much... Beryl Bainbridge was blaming them because it does also seem to be this layer on it of um, that they're not as aware as they think they are, that they're not, they don't fully understand the implications of their actions. That, but I was like, how much of that is me reading that now, knowing that a 13 year old girl is not capable of making those decisions and is, and is going to be the victim in any situation in which an adult, you know, essentially molests her. It's, uh, but he, at the same time, the, the way the narrative is written, he he is also a victim. But it's like, but you know, mentally, I know that that is you know, and certainly legally, that is not the case. So I don't know. It was it was juggling all those things, but also the way she writes is so slippery and dark, and um, often quite funny, but in a very darkly dark way as well. Um, yeah, so it's a really strange one, but not that much an outlier in the way that she writes novels. Wow, that's interesting. So I was wondering whether it was typical of her her style or not. And I, I think perhaps maybe it's not quite a style for me. But um, yeah, I thought it's really interesting reading this depiction of of teenage children. And I think it's, it's a really interesting topic for a novel because teenagers are on that cusp of, of childhood and adulthood. And it is very difficult. And it's very difficult in the legal system as well. There's always debates about this as to when responsibility and awareness and knowledge can be considered of an like that of an adult and when you know somebody has to be considered more like a child and certainly from my perspective as my job being involved with teenagers and has have been for well over a decade now um I felt that there were some elements of the story that I, I thought I just didn't believe that that girls of that age would have that awareness of um, what they were doing. And for me, particularly Harriet seemed much older than, than her actual age in terms of her sexual awareness and her desire really to hurt other people. I mean, both of these, Harriet's a very damaged, damaged person, I thought. And mm. For me, it didn't. There wasn't really a huge amount of justification in in the novel for why she is as she is, and you know maybe that was deliberate on Beryl Bainbridge's part of wanting to to kind of say something about some people just are like this. Um, you know, there doesn't have to be some kind of psychological reason for 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 why she is as she is, but the fact that she kind of fixates on this older gentleman and seems to enjoy this process of humiliating him of wanting him to be punished but then she does kind of lose her nerve at the at, at some point but then there's there's also I think she loses her nerve because then she knows that she's going to get in trouble and she retreats back into that idea of oh but I'm just a child and I didn't know um but I think she she does know and I don't know. It just it felt. I just felt to me like I I didn't feel that a fourteen year old would have would have that amount that ability to to think with such manipulation. But then maybe I'm I'm being too generous to fourteen year olds. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since I was fourteen, and I'm not a teacher, so I don't see them every day. But to me, it, it seemed 
very um, possible that people would be cruel without fully anticipating the impact of cruelty because it's an age where people haven't fully developed empathy. Um, maybe I'm being unjust, but um, that you know sadly did ring quite true to me that she would think oh, oh, she's sort of just treating it like a game that she doesn't really understand how it will affect everyone or care. It's just not. She's just like here's an interesting thing we could do. Um, so I, mean, I didn't. I didn't read it like that. I thought that she knew that she was. She knew what would happen, and she fixated on this because she knew that a man of that age doing something sexually with girls of their age, there would be a consequence, and that knowingness and doing it deliberately at to humiliate and knowing that what the response of other adults around them would be. For me, I just thought, I don't see why, why would a girl of that age want to do that? It just, I, I, it didn't, I didn't feel that the justification was ever there. And that is quite like Beryl Bainbridge, I will say, that she often just has people do unpleasant things without any obvious reason. It's, this is the only one I can think of that I've read that involves children having sex, as it were. Uh, but, uh, you know, whatever scenario she's in, there's generally someone doing something fairly malevolent but without um without there's never a message in the Vera Bainbridge novel I think is oh, you, okay. you never yeah. yeah um but certainly I can't think of one and um things often spiral out of control often in more of a like comic way I guess whereas there was some I mean I found the scene where the narrator and Mr Viggs were trapped in the church was quite yeah. funny that um they're desperately trying to get out he's quite cowardly uh, she's quite cowardly in that situation. They're both they're both mm. scared, um, and Harriet's locked them in there. Probably it's never quite confirmed, but we assume she has. Yeah, um, yeah, very strange. Uh, I did find. Um, I mean, it's a much more opaquely written, in some ways, novel than um, Sheep's Clothing, which is written in a very straightforward way, mm. um, and it's, it's very obvious the, the rationale that these two women have it's to make money yeah. uh, that's you know they're not and i did think there were some nice touches like they they steal a silver photo frame but they leave behind the, the photo of the old married couple because they're, they're sort of going the opposite way particularly um with these like just people they've never or only briefly met before um they're not trying to humiliate them they don't they're not trying to upset them really they just they just want money um but, but i did find that dispassionate element to it quite hard to read as well because uh, I, I think they both felt like quite nasty books actually and I know we've done a Celia Dale before where, where it had people being unpleasant um, but I don't know this one just felt because it was so many people they, they were victimizing and so many people that they were just meeting briefly and um, abusing their trust and moving on rather, as opposed to the previous one we did where it was one person over a sustained period of time mm. uh, it just felt overwhelmingly nasty how did you find it I absolutely loved it. And I think for me, what I loved the most was the character of Grace and her voice that I just thought was so well created that you know, the way that the dialogue is written, you can just hear Grace. Um, and I just, she was just this fully embodied character for me. And what I found really interesting about it is that there wasn't a huge amount of backstory for either of, of the, either Grace or Janice. Mm. What you do know about Janice is that she was sexually abused as a child and she grew up in an abusive household. And there's sort of a suggestion that, that Grace grew up in a household where there was no love or affection. 
So you have just enough to enable you to understand why they've become as they have become. And I certainly think Janice is a more sympathetic figure than than Grace. Mm, she's mm. not very bright. She's easily led. Um, and she's on her own in the world. And, and Grace offers her a home and she sort of looks after her, essentially. Um, but what I thought was interesting about it is is the fact that Grace does these things because, you know, she enjoys stealing from people. She enjoys the thrill of the chase. She enjoys planning mm, it. Mm. Like the thing that she enjoys the most is not necessarily the execution, but the planning. So we learn that she, during the day, she goes to the library and she'll sit there and she'll get a newspaper and a cup of coffee and she will watch people. She sits there and she kind of sees, right, who's coming in on their own? Who Who's just gone to get their pension? And that kind of criminal, not mastermind necessarily, but but that enjoyment that she takes in being able to plan and execute something and be successful at something, um, I, I found fascinating. And I think it's unusual for uh, novelists to portray women in this way, women as being calculating, women as being capable of of hurting other people, and they don't necessarily need a reason. Grace does it because it's easy. She would rather get money from other people than have to work for it. And there's no real justification for it other than that. Yeah, you do sometimes think her life would be just as easy if she had a job because you know she doesn't they don't make huge amounts from these things often it's just you know 50 quid under a mattress and a few photo frames or something um and she, she yeah as you say she's obviously grace is very intelligent um very good at managing very like she she would have opportunities elsewhere but yeah i think you're right there is that thrill of the chase i actually preferred reading janice who is um not very intelligent she's she's really only in on this because grace needs somebody else and because janice has a subscription for um pills for an illusory back pain that can be used to send people to sleep mm. um and there's this sort of romantic subplot which i had not expected going into it where where janice meets a man in a bar and they um she tells all these fanciful lies about her her past yeah. or her, indeed her present which the man obviously doesn't believe but um but there's quite a sweet relationship that that, that develops and that did help me um not feel quite so bleak reading it i guess I don't know, there's something, I know that Harriet said is a very nasty book in many ways, but um, but somehow it didn't feel quite so uh, upsetting to me. Maybe because when people are targeting lots of people that they don't know very well, that seems more chilling to me than people targeting one person that they do know. Oh, see, I didn't find it chilling because there, there wasn't, it wasn't personal. Whereas, That's what makes it chilling to me, I think. Oh, yeah. no, see, for me, that that kind of, in Harriet said, that deliberate targeting and deliberate manipulation and wholesale, over time, choice to destroy somebody else's life um, in a way that felt cruel and nasty and targeted, for me, was more upsetting than turning up randomly at someone's house and just being like, well, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to take your stuff and it's not personal. And also, you know, like that moment where they do choose not to take the photograph, they're not cruel. They don't go in and like, you know, mess up the house and chuck stuff yeah. around and whatever. They're just like, they go in, they take what they want and they leave. And they always make sure, obviously that's what comes in later as, as being a problem. Yeah. They always make sure that they don't, they, they don't give the, 
the people enough to actually harm them. There's no desire to actually hurt these people. Obviously, for a lot of those people, the crime will have a harmful effect. It will make them feel less secure in their home. But the reason why they do the crime in the way that they do by putting sleeping, essentially drugging them so they fall asleep and taking little things is because they think it will mean that the women won't notice that anything's happened to them. So they can't, there is a sort of, not compassion, but there, there is a kind of process to it where they try to limit the damage that they do to people. Yeah, I guess for me, it's um, thinking it's very unlikely that anyone that, that I know or that myself will be in the position of Mr. Biggs, but, but people I love could easily be targeted by this sort of person maybe so i'm always more chilled by things that i think could happen i guess mm-hmm. um and yeah as you say they they're not being deliberately cruel but but these are those sort of stray things they said where um you know well the, the narrative says about you know they they took all their savings that they'd put there for 30 years or they um no, I mean, you know yeah. they only found later that you know they they'd taken their mother's ring or whatever there's all sorts of things that uh I don't know, it just would be so chilling. Chilling is the wrong word. Um, but, you know, I don't know, it would really be detrimental to their lives in a way that is not, this, it's not the, um, that's not the reason they're doing it, as you say, in the way that it does seem to be in Harriet's head. But, uh, but it's all part of it, I guess. No, and I don't disagree with you. And I also, you know, don't want to downplay the significance of, of what they're, you know, what they're doing is cruel. And they are taking away, um, people's special items to these people and also damaging their self-confidence um, afterwards and you know that has an enormous impact but um, for me it just I don't know why but it just didn't feel as calculating as in Harriet said but I think what is really interesting as well in sheep's clothing is that you also have this that, like relationship between the women where yes. they're they're manipulate Grace is manipulating Janice, and then when Janice starts to want to to have that independence and to have her own life and to have a relationship with somebody, um, how Grace sort of will will allow it up to a certain point, but Janice is is kind of rebelling in the only way that she can, and it's you know you can see that something disastrous is going to happen, and also the fact that you know Janice does make poor choices, and, and Grace knows that and tries to look out for her, but it, it's also interesting that then Grace has uh, sees an opportunity, and for the first time she finds herself in over her head, and um, finding out that actually she does need Janice, I thought was quite interesting. A reversal as we get towards the end of the of the te- of the novel. Yeah, something I did find surprising. Uh, I read um, the Dale first and then the Bainbridge. Is how, in so many ways, similar the relationship between the two central women slash girls are in these books. There, there mm-hmm. is this. Um, both Grace and Harriet are these domineering uh, women girl who expect the other person to basically be there, that do what they want them to do, and in yeah. both cases that relationship sort of breaks down when the other one um, gets some independence. Janice in a much different way from the unnamed narrator in, in Harriet's head, because I think the unnamed narrator is always doing things that she hopes will in Harriet's approval. She's just misunderstood what yeah. it is that Harriet wants her to do. Uh, and it's it's more sort of spirals because of the lack of awareness, whereas Janice just gets a bit stubborn and fed up um, and sees maybe a different path she could take. Um, but yeah, I thought in terms of 
unhealthy relationship between between women or between girls um i thought really interestingly similar yeah very much so and how women can manipulate and use other women i think is again a really interesting topic for a, a novel that you don't see often um and you know janice is is not stupid is she's she's not stupid she does see what, what grace is doing um but she's her kind of attempts at at kind of fighting back are, are quite mild. There's no Janice doesn't manipulate in any way. Whereas I do think that what's interesting is is this idea of of in Harriet said the other girl being the narrator. You do wonder mm, mm. is she manipulating this narrative to absolve herself from any responsibility here? You never quite get the measure of what's really happened because it is uh, to some extent an unreliable narration. Yeah, absolutely. Something I found interesting with um, Sheep's Clothing is it felt to me much earlier than it was. So it was, um, it was published in 1988, but felt very sort of 50s, 60s to me. Um, and I yeah, know that right, the previous yeah. one we did was, was 1960s, I think. So maybe maybe she sort of had a, a type of novel she returned to. I mean, there are some bits like there's language in it and um, there are a couple of moments which sort of jolted me to think, oh, actually, this is set in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but broadly just felt very sort of mid-century. Yeah, a little bit um, kind of like, what's her name? Um, the one who don't like, Hey Tardy Lap, Anita Bruckner. Oh, Anita Bruckner. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like that sort of felt a little bit out of its time, a little bit old-fashioned, fa- old I suppose. But then I did find it quite interesting, those, the references in um harriet said i i couldn't sort of place a time on it actually it felt a little bit out of time yeah well it's there's one moment where they mention having been um children during the war so it must be set not long after the first world war sorry second world war it didn't it kind of didn't feel like a it didn't no it it was sort of yeah it just felt a bit unmoored really um which maybe was the point as well to say this could happen anywhere, anytime? I don't know, but yeah, it definitely felt if I had like it felt contemporary to the nineteen seventies, and if if I had to pick any time, but you're right, there's yeah. I think maybe determinedly not that many, uh, yeah, references to date it, which you know perhaps impacts your your response to it. But uh, it was yeah, both of them are very interesting reading experiences. Um, but sheep's clothing, I found an enjoyable read in a way that even though I could appreciate how well written Harriet said was, um, going back to critical and and charitable reading, Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was a kind of rottenness at the core of it. I felt like I was reading something that was written by somebody who wasn't very nice. Um, And I I don't know why, why I got that from it at all. I just thought, I don't like that somebody's brain has come up with this. Um, well, it sounds like decision-making time, you, and you're going with Celia Dale. Um, interestingly, I'm going with Beryl Bainbridge for, oh. m- for many of the same reasons that you've not gone for it. Uh, well, I mean, I love the writing. I think she's a really interesting writer. She reminds me of Barbara Cummins in some ways, that sort of detached strangeness. Uh, it's definitely got nastier things in it. But um, I think I just, even though it's got all these horrible things in, I felt less grubby reading it than I did reading Sheep's Clothing. Oh, right. Just, yeah, so I I really admire the sparseness and the you know the clarity of um, Celia Dale's writing, but I just felt too uh, 
too sad reading it. How interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I was expecting you to feel the same way as me. So I'm, yeah. I'm really interested by that. Yeah, interesting. Well, we need to try and read something fun and sunny next. But what we'll actually do in the next episode, um, which we did last year, is go through our top 10 books each of 2023. Yeah. So we're not going to be reading specific books. So last time we did read books as well, and it all spiraled out of control. So we'll just do a nice leisurely episode talking about uh, our top 10 books. Yeah, and I Um, suppose we should wish everybody a Merry Christmas, as I don't think we'll be recording. Yes, absolutely. Have a wonderful Christmas. Uh, As we record, it's Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to uh, those who celebrate, and Happy New Year. Yeah. And look forward to seeing you all in January. Bye. Bye.